This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Uh, today we are speaking about the U.S. governmental response to COVID 19, how federal and state authorities are addressing the pandemic. We have a pair of lawyers on the line, as well as a physician. Joining me from Boston is our Boston Office Director, Courtney Gedingle. Courtney is a senior physician researcher who has been on service in recent weeks at Boston Children's Hospital. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Uh, also calling in from Boston is Rebecca Hafaji, a health policy researcher and lawyer. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Jeff. Glad to be with you. And Philip Carter, joining from a few miles down the road in Arlington, Virginia. He is director of the Personnel and Resources Program within the Homeland Security Operational Analysis Center here at RAND, as well as being a lawyer and a governance expert. Hi, Phil. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. Good to have you. Uh, This is our fifth call with the experts regarding the pandemic, and we've got more lined up. Uh, Okay, let's dive in. Rebecca, I'll start with you. Obviously, the question of government jurisdiction has been contentious this week with the president claiming certain prerogatives and a number of governors pushing back. So who should be taking the lead? Yeah, I think it needs to be a combination. Um, And the federal government and the states have different proficiencies and different powers that um, they can bring to bear uh, that are relevant to this crisis. Um, The federal government, I I see, is taking a lead or should be taking a lead, I think, in terms of um, any interstate travel or uh, virus spread risks. And they do have power. The CDC has quarantine power, for example, to do that. Um, Also, in terms of coordinating supplies, uh, personal protective equipment, ventilators, those sorts of things, um, really, that's a federal uh, jurisdictional area so that we don't have competing between states happening. Um, Also, in terms of the economic stimulus, um, as we've seen uh, the various bills and um, laws come forward, uh, you know, that's really, again, a federal response because the states really just don't have the funds to be uh, dealing with this. You know, where it gets a little more tricky and where we've seen more state powers are in terms of some of the stay-at-home orders, business closures, those sorts of things. And I know we're going to get into that more, um, you know, and there's arguments both ways that the states uh, should have some jurisdiction and are local to their populations and can be laboratories of experimentation in terms of what works and what doesn't. Um, They also arguably have more of their uh, more legitimacy to act in some of those regards and the the public's trust. Uh, So, you know, there are some areas where they um, they have the powers and they, you know, under their both public health emergency powers and ordinary police powers um, to act. Uh, and they should be, but um, I think the balance there uh, and on those those types of actions is a little bit more tricky to to strike the right balance. Uh, use the word legitimacy. Uh, maybe Phil, you could weigh in on weigh in here. Uh, where where do you see the the top prerogative uh, regarding legitimacy between the feds and the states? It's a great question, Jeff, and I'll give you the classic legal answer that it depends. As Rebecca pointed out, the Constitution reserves most of the power in this space for states, and what the federal government can do is generally limited to interstate commerce or international things like what goods and supplies and people we admit from overseas. The challenge here is that uh, a great deal of the response infrastructure and the intelligence and the public health surveillance resides at the federal level in agencies like the CDC, 
but the actual decisions about whether to open or close reside at the state level. And so what we really need to see is cooperation between these levels of government where uh, the intelligence may exist at the national level, but it's going to be a state-by-state decision as to when and how to open up schools, businesses, and other uh, parts of society. Are there areas where we are seeing decent cooperation? There's emerging cooperation on things like FEMA funding for state National Guard deployments. There is cooperation around places like ports of entry, which are obviously in states. And so there's a necessary working relationship between the Coast Guard and Customs and Border Protection and local law enforcement in those places. Um, There could probably be better cooperation on the public health side, though, uh, and certainly between uh, the governors and the the White House. Given the more aggressive actions so far of the states versus the feds, where do we stand? Uh, where, what have been the advantages or disadvantages of this patchwork approach? Uh, maybe I could go back to you, Rebecca, on this. Yeah, so we've seen quite a variety uh, in terms of state and local responses. And as you mentioned, this patchwork that has developed, um, you know, there were some early actors like the state of Washington, which saw some of the initial, um, you know, largest number of cases initially. uh, And they were one of the earliest to enact a stay at home order back in March, March 23rd, I believe. Um, And they have seen somewhat of a downward trajectory um, in, you know, we think in response to um, that, those aggressive actors. We saw other places like Ohio that didn't quite have as many uh, cases, but they acted really early as well. Um, Around that same time, they issued a a statewide stay-at-home order, um, and we think that that also has helped their trajectory um, of infections and and, uh, morbidity and mortality as well. We still have states now, we have a vast majority of states that have statewide orders um, and have closed businesses uh, largely, um, all businesses except essential orders, Sorry, except essential businesses. But um, we still have, I believe my last count is six states um, that do not have stay at home orders. Um, And so they are deciding to allow their uh, residents to have more uh, more control over over how they act. They are relying on voluntary compliance with CDC guidelines uh, that um, that do restrict or suggest that, you know, gatherings be limited and that sort of thing. So, you know, we've seen that variation. We've seen which ones are we talking about there, Rebecca? Um, It's North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming and Utah um, are the states that don't have statewide orders yet. Um, You know, you may have seen there is sort of some discussion about, uh, you know, what effect is that going to have? Uh, Initially, we thought outbreaks were going to be focused in urban areas where there's, you know, people living in very close proximity. I think we still think that, but um, now we are seeing spreads to rural areas. And so some of these more rural states, their governors have taken the approach that, you know, we are not a New York City. We, you know, are going to approach this in a very targeted fashion instead. Um, But now we are seeing some repercussions of that in North in South Dakota, excuse me, for example, uh, we have a large outbreak, a hotspot um, in a meat uh, processing plant, the Smithfield Fool Foods. We have over 450 workers there that are infected. Um, and we have, you know, a lot of sparring between the governor and localities. We have mayors of cities asking for stay statewide stay at home orders and the governor's not saying they are not going to do that. We have other states like Arizona, where there is a stay at home order um, and certain uh, essential businesses and business closures with that. Uh, and that has they have said, localities, you can't do any 
slightly more than we have done. Um, so they are essentially preempting local action and some localities want to do more. So we're seeing a lot of this sort of variation in terms of responses and even um, differences within juris within states and, and within jurisdictions. Um, and the challenge here is, you know, that you know, with other, and we might get into this more, but with other uh, public health issues or even infectious diseases that have different characteristics, uh, the, the speed with which um, the virus can transmit and travel uh, may be different. And with coronavirus, with COVID-19, it's quite efficient at uh, spreading quickly and across state lines, across town lines, all of these sorts of things. So that makes it really challenging when we have one town reacting one way and right next door, another town reacting in another way. Um, and there's no way that their actions don't affect each other. Are these cases where you think the feds should have been weighing in a bit more? I think potentially, you know, it's it certainly in an evidence-based fashion. So, you know, to the extent, uh, that we can see and we know now lessons from places, other countries like Taiwan or um, South Korea, where there have been much more aggressive uh, physical distancing measures, as well as contact tracing and testing, et cetera, um, uh, undertaken. And then we've seen some early successes in states that have 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 taken some aggressive actions as well. And I've already mentioned uh, we can learn from those and know these things seem to work. You know, we, we can't we don't have time to do a comprehensive evaluation yet. But the early evidence suggests that this works. We need to react in real time. And so if some jurisdictions are not not governing in a way that is consistent with that evidence, uh, and we think that it would help, you know, we need to, you know, I think that may be an area where the federal government can step in and give, you know, they can't order a state to have a stay-at-home order, but they can use some of their other levers to try to encourage that more, more aggressively than they have. Courtney, do you want to weigh in here? Oh, right. I was just going to build on um, what Rebecca had said about, um, you know, the virus really not respecting state lines. And a nice example is with influenza, Often rural states and rural communities are more affected later in the season, so it's a little slower to get to them. But once it's there, it, you know, just like colds and other infections, we do see this spread in rural communities. And the big concern there is just less access. Uh, we know that rural populations tend to have some more of the comorbidities that predispose to a poorer outcome with COVID-19. So there's really a sort of a tension between balancing autonomy of states and locales to decide how to handle an infection um, versus the risk um, posed to sort of regions or, or certain areas uh, when decisive action isn't taken. Just to explore a little bit more the relationship between the states that have been aggressive in shutting down early, such as California, and those that have been less aggressive, such as Florida, or that even haven't shut down at all. What do you see happening on those fronts? Are, are those that uh, were slower or have not yet shut down, are they going to need more support from the U.S. government in the coming weeks? Rebecca? I think that's a distinct possibility. Um, I think we do need to think about, you know, I think places like Florida that have been slower to respond, it's more likely that they are just delayed in terms of their trajectory. It may not ever get as bad as New York. It probably will not, but um, but they are just on a later time frame. And so, um, you know, whereas 
you know, maybe initially some states needed more of the PPE and more of the uh, supplies and, and that sort of thing. Other places might need them a little bit later um, and, the, and need some help from the federal government in that. Uh, and it may also be that some of those states need more encouragement from the federal government to take more aggressive actions um, so that they can, you know, move through this peak of infection and get to the other side of that. Um, Although that that raises a good or an important question, Rebecca, which is how the federal government chooses to do that. So as a general rule, the federal government can condition receipt of federal funds. It does so with a variety of means when it wants to encourage good behavior. And the classic example is tying highway funds to having a drinking age of 21. But you know, this has become so politicized that there's going to be a great deal of friction between states and the federal government if uh, federal funds or FEMA assistance or other things get tied up with particular policy preferences of the White House. And so if, if all parties play it straight and the federal government uses that leverage to um, do things that are evidence-based and in accordance with sound uh, advice from the CDC and others, then it should work well. But if we begin to see other agendas creep into this, then that's going to create real problems for both the state and the federal government. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, um, Phil, that we need to be careful about how those funds are conditioned. For example, um, you know, one one factor is that those are congressional powers, right? They're not the, the president's executive, you know, cannot do that by executive fiat. The Congress has the power of the purse, the power to um, regulate commerce, the power to re- to condition its spending, the power to tax, those are congressional powers. So at least we have, you know, more uh, elected officials from both parties and all states that are actually making those decisions, um, hopefully in an evidence-based fashion. Uh, so that helps a bit. But I agree. I mean, in an ideal world, I would prefer to see um, the executive using its powers to convene governors and encourage them to actually act in a unified fashion and based on evidence, provide them with the best evidence, um, make sure that, um, you know, they're they're making they're making decisions in in a coordinated fashion, considering other states, that allocation of resources is being fairly distributed across those states, like th- those sorts of things I would prefer to see happen than to have to take stronger steps and more draconian steps of, of saying, look, we're not going to give you your school money if you don't close your schools for this amount of time. Um, so, Good, good. Let's talk a bit about the regional consortia of states we're seeing form. Uh, there seems to be well, there is one on the East Coast, Northeast, and on the West Coast. And how are those groups coordinating or not with the federal government? Rebecca, do you want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, we're in the very early stages of seeing these regional consortia or uh, of, of governors. So we have a Northeast one. We have one on the West Coast um, at this point uh, of governors that are convening and uh, trying to come up with both share scientific information and come up with a plan for reopening uh, that is coordinated across them. Um, and, uh, and you know, and that's a really positive step. I think they're fairly new, so we don't really know what they're discussing at the moment and what, what their plans are going to be. Um, but they say that, you know, it's going to be based on science. They have the best epidemiologists and, and um, infectious disease specialists that are advising them. Um, and so I think we'll, we have to wait and see what happens. But, but 
in my mind, it's a positive step. And it's it's the idea of, you know, acting in a unified fashion, understanding that we're going to be more effective at addressing this type of infectious disease if we have um, cooperation across state lines instead of competing for resources, not allowing somebody from another state to come into your state and, and checking license plates and these sorts of things that are, I think, not particularly helpful and don't um, don't encourage that kind of, of working together. That is really what we would prefer. How much of that see. has there been? I, I feel like mostly I've heard that in terms of Rhode Island mm-hmm. checking the New Yorkers and Florida also checking the New Yorkers. Are New York are, are New York plates the only ones that are uh, subject to this kind of attention? That's what I have mostly heard about, um, and and then also you know Florida uh, not or quarantining people who are flying from New York. A, a number of uh, beach communities like South Carolina, or I think it was Georgia, is quarantining people who are flying in from other states. So there's some of that happening, but um, but there certainly has been. Uh, a lot of uh, attention towards New Yorkers and and them traveling to other places, even within New York, even going to uh, Long Island or the Hamptons um, has been scrutinized. Um, We have seen that somewhat in Massachusetts as well, where there has been concern among some of the coastal communities that there will, you know, of of an influx of people going to their vacation homes um, and, and making sure that that they're being safe about that. They're concerned that they don't have the capacity in their hospitals to actually treat those people. You know, Michigan, um, the governor there did issue an order uh, that people actually couldn't move in uh, to other houses. So both any vacation homes that they had or, uh, you know, go to friends' houses. So you basically like really have to stay in the house that you are in. Um, So that's one of the strongest orders that we've actually seen. And that's obviously within state. Um, But we are seeing these different varieties of, of travel, both, you know, concerns about traveling within sta- across states, but also within them. And th- this has a potential to start getting sticky, too. When we start thinking about the resumption of full movement, are people going to need a bill of clean health, uh, as we've seen in Italy and other places? And who issues that? And who allows someone to get on a plane? Is it something TSA will check? Is it something the airlines will check? All sorts of sticky issues there in terms of legal authority, potential detention authority if you flout those rules, uh, transmission of PII to people that aren't typically in the loop for healthcare information. Um, you know, airlines don't usually trade in HIPAA-protected information. And so there's a whole set of unanswered questions here to be tackled as we begin to think about reopening America. But it sounds like you're both suggesting, and Courtney may want to weigh in here as well, that we have so many different approaches to how to respond to this crisis. And the key seems to be social distancing. We're dealing with it in many different ways. Should the feds be weighing in more heavily here? And do you think they will? I mean, I think that this is an incredibly complex problem, as you know, all of our discussions point to. And we're talking about so many different interventions because likely to reopen safely and gradually it will really take a combination of thoughtful uh, strategies. So that may involve continued social distancing, staggered return to work or school, um, you know, pretty aggressive testing and contact tracing. You know, I think the role of sort of proving immunity is still really up in the air. And we can talk a little bit more about what what needs to happen scientifically before we can even really contemplate that and how that would work out in various settings where maybe schools are one of the better prepared areas to actually start dealing with that. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And certainly from a clinical and scientific point of view, um, experts have long looked to CDC or a central authority as really a brain trust, you know, a, 
a collection of experts who have spent their lives um, learning and understanding these types of diseases, being able to extrapolate in a really, um, you know, expert and experienced way. And so I really, as a clinician and as a scientist, I see a centralized role there for really consolidating all of that expertise, also drawing on um, communication abilities and experience in communicating with the public is something that I think um, all of us have been wanting to see throughout this and has often played a, a strong role in pandemics or infectious outbreaks. You know, we looked at the response to past infectious outbreaks recently and whether we need this sort of system of care. And one strong element that emerged that people really wanted um, to have in place is sort of a brain trust and part of that is also for equity to make sure that all areas of the country have reasonable access to the expertise that is needed to handle these sorts of challenging infections, which often are challenging in different ways. What, what do you mean by a brain trust? So, I, you know, we use that term sort of colloquially, but it's really um, consolidating expertise and being able to distribute it. And what's sort of nice about infectious disease expertise is that they're often... Um, it can be shared without physically having to be somewhere. And in fact, for infections, there's often a huge benefit to that. You don't want to expose your entire expert workforce to an infection that could actually sort of take them down for the time being. So that's not to discount the role of being in person. So it was very important for Ebola for people to get physical training on how to don and doff personal protective equipment or PPE very carefully because of such a high risk of self-contamination. That's important for um, COVID as well, though maybe to a little bit of a lesser extent. Um, but the idea is that expertise is really, um, you know, easily identified in a central place in a way that can be pushed out to sort of all communities across the country with guidelines that are consistent, you know, um, both internally and with external evidence as well. Um, and so that was praised as being quite helpful. For example, with Zika, uh, people felt like there was pretty strong guidance and that was very helpful from CDC. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of what I mean by brain trust. Um, NITEC is uh, a, a network that was set up for Ebola. And so there was expertise concentrated in uh, New York at Bellevue, at Emory in, uh, in Atlanta, and in Nebraska. And so those clinicians became expert and were able to share protocols about how to treat patients. They were able to set up a central IRB so that um, research could be instituted quickly and in real time with and you know, be able to surmount some of the obstacles to getting human subjects protection clearance. Um, Does that so brain trust exist now, and it's or or and it's not being heard to the extent that you think perhaps it should be, or is I the or is that brain trust overwhelmed by what's going on? Yeah, I don't think they're, you know, the formal brain, I guess NITEC probably is closest to what we would think of as a brain trust. It's not formally labeled that. It does still exist. It's still being funded. And they did actually um, play a role. So some of the um, patients from, I believe, the crews who were being quarantined were actually sent to Nebraska. The issue with the Ebola model is it's really intended for pretty rare but very serious infectious diseases where you want to prevent it from not being contained. COVID is obviously well beyond that stage. So it's not like you can really rely on, you know, eight central, uh, eight regionalized hospitals to have this expertise. Um, but I think there is still a role for a centralized brain trust. And I would say that most clinicians have always thought of CDC as being that brain trust um, of scientists who have this, you know, longstanding sort of knowledge repository. Got it. Uh, what about some other examples? You mentioned Ebola, you mentioned Zika. Uh, can we take any lessons from other outbreaks? Uh, 1918 Spanish flu, H1N1, 
uh, maybe Rebecca, you could weigh in on those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the Spanish flu in 1918, obviously we were in a very different uh, place in this country. Um, we did see, similar to what we're seeing now, some cities that responded early with aggressive actions and really shut things down. Uh, St. Louis is one example. They had an organized response and they mitigated a lot of harms and infections. We saw Philadelphia who, you know, they insisted on holding a big parade and they had large spikes in infections and, um, and mortalities associated with that. So we already knew that like some of these physical distancing um, uh, actions worked uh, and, that's, and we saw a similar patchwork um, of responses there. Uh, with H1N1, you know, we had many more cases in the U.S. than some of these other like Ebola um, and highly infectious, but it was also less lethal uh, that we think than um, COVID-19. Um, we did have, that's, you know, more in our current era, we did have the U.S. declaring a public health emergency. We had uh, seven states, I believe, declaring public health emergencies associated with H1N1. Um, in the end, we had about uh, 12, a little over 12,000 deaths. Uh, that response seemed to work reasonably well. Um, that you know, it did exhibit some similar characteristics to COVID in terms of its transmissibility, uh, but it was not as as lethal. And so we were able to um, you know keep it. You know, it did affect. We did have deaths in every state, but um, we didn't have the widespread like really severe um, infections and and deaths that we are experiencing and and expect to continue to experience with COVID. Um, so you know, so I think that's why we're seeing. Uh, responses in this in this current pandemic uh, that are unprecedented. We have never had all 50 states <laughs> declare some kind of an emergency with respect to uh, a an event. Um, plus the federal government declaring three. Plus you know just uh, you know the number of actions that we've had is is on a different scale than we've ever really seen before. Um, and I think that's appropriate to to what's happening. Uh, so you know we can take some lessons from those other diseases, but there are there are certain characteristics of COVID. It's both its transmissibility and it's it's spread asymptomatically. That is that makes it different from Ebola and many of those other high, highly fatal diseases. Um, and then it's it's like higher fatality rate we think than the flu and H1N1. Sort of that that combination is sort of a perfect storm for this this explosion that we're seeing. So let's turn to how we are going to. Uh shift out of it or to get out of this pandemic. We've, we've already mentioned a few times in this call reopening. Uh, the idea of reopening and who gets to determine it is one of the things that caused the conflict between the Trump administration and some states this week. Uh, Courtney, can we even start thinking about reopening yet? Uh, where, where do we stand first off with new cases? How close are we to peaking? How close are we to uh, getting a vaccine, to having more tests? Just mm -hmm. give us a quick recap. Yeah, it might be easier to almost start sort of further in the future. So to ultimately control this, I think it's agreed that we either need to be able to vaccinate everyone, and that means having an effective vaccine that people are also willing to take on a large scale, and it, or it means that enough people have had it that we have herd immunity. And there's some disagreement as to what percentage is required for that. Somewhere between 50 and 90%, my guess would be some, you know, something like 80 to 90% of the population would need to be immune to that. Where are there's we now? Also some, uh, that's not known. My, you know, people think probably not more than even 10 to 20 percent in areas that have been hit pretty hard. And we still don't have a great grasp of the immunity that you get from having this infection. So scientists' best assumption is that there is likely to be immunity 
that lasts at least, you know, one to three years, maybe longer, based on what we understand about SARS, for example, and also some preliminary um, studies in macaques, which uh, are a type of monkey. Um, we do have the ability to measure now antibody. There are some rapid tests that um, are useful only to tell you whether you've likely had it before or not. So it just it's more like a yes, no answer. And what's nice is they can be done quickly. They can potentially be done at home. And there are also tests that are coming that can tell you the level of antibody. But we still don't know what level of antibody is needed to actually confer lasting immunity. There's some concern that people that had quite mild cases may not actually have a robust immune reaction. So far, we have the suggestion that people that are a bit older that are hit more severely have the most robust um, antibody reaction. And people that are younger and have very mild asymptomatic infection may not actually develop uh, high enough titers of antibody um, to actually be protective. So these are huge unanswered questions in term of, terms of our long-term control. And realistically, I think there's not going to be a vaccine for at least you know, 12 to 18 months, maybe longer than that. So we are looking at what is likely to be a sort of prolonged period, unfortunately, of life not returning exactly to normal uh, if we want to preserve sort of our healthcare workforce, our healthcare system, uh, be able to care for diseases other than COVID and not have our hospitals be overwhelmed uh, with people requiring sort of intensive level care for that. So that's sort of what we're looking at in the longer term. I think what in the about short immunity term, certificates? If we get those in hand now, is that going to get us closer to be able, being able to reopen? Well, that's a, a that's a very complex question. I'd, I'd love to hear my colleagues' thoughts on that as well. I think before we can contemplate that, we really need to nail down the science of immunity, and then moving on to how that would even be implemented. You know, is like is its own sort of entire question that we could certainly certainly turn to. Um, and it, but I, I do think that um, we don't yet have a good understanding of how long immunity lasts, what level of antibody is needed. We don't have the capacity yet, I don't believe, to test the entire population. So we'd have to manufacture enough tests and all the equipment. We'd have to be able to get every person safely to a healthcare provider to um, get tested unless we could be confident that the rapid at-home tests, um, that their yes-no answer can give us a good enough answer on immunity. So, you know, I think we have a ways to go. I don't see immunity certificates in the short term uh, necessarily supporting sort of the, net, the first phase of reopening after these current surges have passed. It's possible for the future, but then there's the question about how you actually implement an immunity certificate, how that would go over in the U.S. and abroad, for what purposes it would be used. You know, schools are used to requiring vaccination for children. Um, so there, there is the, we're used to exchanging health information about our children with schools and that going to school is conditional on being immune. But in this instance where if there's no vaccine and it's not, you know, necessarily, um, it's not a child's or family's choice as to whether their child is immune to something that just raises, you know, a whole host of questions about equity, um, you know, and others about how we can use this type of information. But I do think the feasibility is really sort of the main limiting factor currently. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be the lawyer or one of the lawyers on this podcast, it also raises questions about liability. So if the federal and state government want the economy to reopen and they want businesses to reopen, they might consider absorbing some of the risk that those businesses may face if their workforces come back to work and they get sick or suffer worse consequences or if they become vectors for transmission. And so we might imagine some sort of a compensation fund or insurance fund that Congress could create or states could create to protect businesses and protect school districts and others uh, from bearing that risk. Um, there is, of course, a fair amount of risk associated with these tests as well. And Congress took that out of the 
the pockets of the people developing them and out of the pockets of others through language in the PREP Act and the CARES Act. And it would be helpful, I think, to see that type of development going forward as well. So that gets to the theory of how we're going to reopen, which is clearly some ways away. But who will ultimately make the call? Is this going to be CDC, Dr. Fauci, some grouping of states, the president? What do you reckon, Phil? So it's likely going to be state governors that really have the pen where it matters. They're the ones who have been issuing the orders to businesses. They're the ones who have the enforcement power. There's some limited ability for the federal government to issue quarantine orders under Title 42 of the U.S. Code. Uh, But it's the state orders that really have bite now. And so as uh, Governor Newsom and the Western Coalition or uh, governors in the Eastern Coalition begin to come together and make those decisions, they will probably be the ones actually moving the ball, informed by what they're hearing from the CDC and NIAID and other federal sources. You know, I heard another take on this today on the radio from the Minneapolis Fed president, Neil Kashkari, who said it's really going to be up to the people. They're going to be the ones who may or may not feel comfortable enough to resume working or shopping or otherwise contributing to the economy. What do you make of that? Well, yeah, I mean, if you open up your business and no one shows up, you may actually lose more than if you remain in a hibernated state as you are now. And so premature opening could actually lead to more economic damage if uh, consumers vote with their feet and stay away from shopping malls and, and other places where the economy needs them to engage in commerce. There is a possibility, I think, the Congress could use its interstate commerce powers to to do something on the economy in terms of business openings. Um, you know, there is case law precedent that suggests that regulating wheat production, for example, even in an individual owner's um, yard for his own use, um, was subject to federal powers and federal regulation. Uh, so, you know, when we think about some of these economic activities, there has been uh, recognition in the, in the court that we can aggregate some of those economic activities. So it potentially is, I I think, arguably within the Congress's power to require businesses to reopen. That's different from ordering this, you know, shelter in place or stay at home orders to be lifted. That would be a different case. Um, But I don't think that Congress is probably going to do that. I think they are going to uh, leave it to the states and the governors to make those determinations. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the president and the executive does not have the power, uh, even under its emergency orders, to uh, require states to lift their stay-at-home orders or require them to open their economies. Courtney? Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, the idea of people sort of talking with their feet or voting with their feet, um, I think that works really well for retail stores, um, for those who have jobs that allow them to decide to work at home. Uh, but there's a, a big issue of equity there in terms of thinking of those who don't have a choice. Um, so if their factory op- factory reopens or the restaurant where they work reopens, their choice may be between, you know, being unemployed or going back to work when they don't feel comfortable. So there's real onus and responsibility on those in leadership at every level to be really thoughtful about the policies around reopening and ensuring that people not only feel safe, but are as safe as possible. And that really depends on, you know, uh, pretty aggressive testing policies, contact tracing, all of those public health measures, and then ultimately working towards treatment and vaccines to get us through this. Fantastic. I think we will close it out there. Rebecca, Phil, Courtney, really appreciate your time. This concludes our call.
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.